Our speaker this evening is economics journalist and professor Robert Kuttner. Kuttner holds a bachelor's degree from Oberlin College and a master's degree from the University of California, Berkeley. He is currently the Meyer and Ida Kirstein professor at Brandeis University, where he teaches in the Heller School. Professor Kuttner is the co-founder and co-editor of the American Prospect magazine and was a longtime columnist for the Business Week. He continues to write for the Huffington Post, the Boston Globe, and the New York Times International Edition. He has authored 11 books, including the 2008 New York Times bestseller, Obama's Challenge, America's Economic Crisis, and the Power of a Transformative Presidency, as well as Debtor's Prison and the Squandering of America, and the book he will discuss tonight, Can Democracy Survive Global Capitalism? Professor Kuttner co-founded and is now a board member of the Economics Policy Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan think tank created to include the needs of low and middle income American workers in economic policy discussions. Tonight, Professor Kuttner will explore the power and policy shifts from the 1970s to today that have created the economic and political climate in which the United States currently operates. Please join me in welcoming Professor Kuttner to the Boston Athenaeum. Thank you very much. And thank you for uh, coming out on this, on this lovely spring evening, which we have worked so hard to wait for and finally got. Um, I, I'm local. I live about five minutes from here with my wife, Joan. And I must say, every time I walk into this magnificent building, I kick myself for not spending uh, more time in it. Um, can democracy survive global capitalism? If someone had written a book with that title, uh, circa 1955, the reaction would have been complete bewilderment. Well, what do you mean, can democracy survive global capitalism? Because in that era, we had a very nice balance of democracy and capitalism, and we had a version of globalism that made plenty of room for each country that participated in the global economic system to decide to have a just, balanced form of domestic economy. And something has gone terribly wrong in the years since then. Uh, as recently as 1989, when the Berlin Wall came down, uh, you could contend, and many people did, that communism had lost, capitalism had won, democracy had won, and now the United States was going to be the role model for the rest of the world, and democracy and capitalism would go marching off together. And uh, there was even a well-known scholar who wrote a book called The End of History, that history had ended with the triumph of liberal democratic capitalism. Well, that was 29 years ago. And since then, we've seen not just a turning away from democracy, but the resurgence of, on the one hand, uh, raw laissez-faire capitalism, where the prizes go to the few and uh, too bad for the many. And on the other hand, we've seen a reaction to that 
in the form of the embrace of what can only be called neo-fascism in country after country after country. And I think that's more than coincidence, it's more than contagion. It has to be understood as a systemic ill. So what happened? What, what went wrong? And uh, in order to try and understand that better, I did a lot of uh, research on, on economic history. And I should say that for all of my political and professional and intellectual life, uh, I have been interested in variations on one core question. How do you reconcile a strong democracy and a dynamic economy and a socially bearable distribution of income and of life chances? And these things do not naturally go together, if you think about it. Um, the first principle of the market is one dollar, one vote. The first principle of democracy is one person, one vote. So reconciling the market, capitalism, and strong democracy is, is a bit like trying to mix oil and water. Um, it's also the case that you need strong democracy in order to bend a market system to the public interest, because otherwise the capitalist part of the system uh, tries to use the power of wealth to undermine and overcome the democratic part of the system. There is, uh, on Constitutional Avenue, Constitution Avenue in Washington, outside the Federal Trade Commission, a wonderful piece of progressive era statuary. It's a wild horse being broken by a rider, and it symbolizes the raw power of commerce being harnessed to serve the public interest. And 100 years ago, that was the spirit of the times. Today, I'm surprised that the statue has not been altered so that it's the horse running down, dragging the rider, running down Constitution Avenue with the rider uh, behind. That's the spirit of uh, the sort of raw capitalism that we thought we had gotten rid of after 1929 that has made a resurgence in the past 30 or 40 years using hyper-globalization as its instrument. If you're gonna have a strong democracy, you need a strong polity, a strong political community. And the home of the political community, for better or for worse, is the nation state. There's no global central bank. There's no global securities and exchange commission. There's no global relation, labor relations board. There's no global citizenship. And um, if, you're, if, if you wanna have citizenship that is meaningful, that can only take place in the context uh, of the nation. That doesn't mean it's smart to be an ultranationalist, but there's something precious about a nation as a political community. And if you have too much globalization, it undermines the ability of a democracy to housebreak capitalism in the broad public interest. So let me take you back to the post-war era. And uh, that's the era many of us grew up with. And we assumed that the economy of that era was just normal. Well, it really wasn't. It was kind of an anomaly. And what happened in that era? Well, we had, we had World War I. There was no reconstruction program after World War I. 
The Allies thought that they could make a defeated Germany pay for the cost of the war. They invented something called reparations. Germany was supposed to pay astronomical amounts of money to the Allies that were far beyond the capacity of the German economy to pay. And the result was complete ruin of post-war Germany, which ended in hyperinflation, which wiped out the German middle class, which led to uh, high unemployment, and ultimately led to Hitler. And um, not only was the policy towards uh, a defeated Germany perverse, but the policies of Britain and France were perverse towards their own citizens. They tried to turn the clock back to before 1914. They used punishingly high interest rates to try and defend their currencies. There was no regulation of speculation. And you had a period that oscillated between wild speculative finance and austerity. And uh, it all came crashing down in 1929. And then we got lucky. We got lucky. If you think about January of 1933, uh, in that month, Adolf Hitler was taking power in Berlin, and Franklin Roosevelt was assembling his cabinet. And of course, that suggests that economic grievance can go far right, or it can go democratic left. And if you think that there was anything inevitable about the New Deal, consider this. In February of 1933, the president-elect was giving a speech in Miami, and an assassin named Joe Zangara got within about 10 feet of Roosevelt and fired five shots at him point blank. Zangara was not a very good shot, and he hit the mayor of Chicago instead. And if he had hit Roosevelt, anybody remember the name of who the president would have been? John Nance Garner, Cactus Jack Garner, a complete racist non-entity from West Texas who is remembered mainly for describing the vice presidency as not worth a bucket of warm spit, except as the historians among you will know, he didn't exactly say spit. It was cleaned up so it could be published in a family newspaper. But John Nance Garner would not have given us the New Deal. So we got Roosevelt. And um, what we got was a leashing, a harnessing, a constraining of the more unsavory tendencies of capitalism. We got very tight regulation of finance so that 1929 would never be repeated again. We got empowerment of organized labor. We got the use of government to invest. And um, as late as 1940, the unemployment rate was still 14%. The depression was over officially, but unemployment lingered on. And a lot of economists of that era felt that, well, maybe 14% unemployment is the best the economy could do because of technological unemployment and uh, automation. And then along comes the war. And uh, in the first six months of uh, 1942, the government enters uh, $100 billion of war production orders, and unemployment disappears. And so the democratic state gains a lot of prestige, both in the New Deal and during the war. And um, we come out of the war feeling that uh, this must never happen again. Capitalism must never again go haywire. And the leaders on the other side of the Atlantic conclude the same thing. They're looking back at 1919, the Treaty of Versailles, 
where they completely bungled the recovery from World War One, And they also concluded that we are never going to let this happen again. So we're going to have a managed version of capitalism. This was uh, the great theme of the Bretton Woods Conference of 1944, which was the design for the global economic system. Keynes, John Maynard Keynes, was the architect of Bretton Woods. And his notion was, let's have an international financial and monetary and trading system that allows commerce to, be, to, to resume, but also allows individual states to have forms of managed capitalism that have a decent distribution of income, of work, of life chances, and it worked. It worked. And so for 30 years, we had a system that was unmatched either before or since in the history of capitalism. We had very well-regulated finance, no credit default swaps, no uh, exploding mortgages. Uh, banking was almost like a public utility. Labor had a seat at the table. There was a lot of public investment. And there were also constraints on international speculative finance. You had a system of fixed exchange rates so that speculators could not bet against currencies and bet against the economies of entire countries. And there's a section of the book that I'm particularly fond of, and it's called A Tale of Two Socialists. Uh, the first socialist in the, in the tale is a man named Clement Attlee, who was the uh, British Labour Prime Minister who defeated Winston Churchill in 1945. Now, at that point, Britain, Britain just was ravaged during the war, even though Britain was on the winning side. Britain had lost something like a quarter of its national wealth, a million dwellings had been destroyed in the Blitz, and Britain had gone into debt. It had a debt of 240% of GDP. Uh, now, if today's uh, advisors were advising Britain, uh, many of them, especially those in the austerity camp, would say, well, you need to tighten your belts. Uh, you need to reassure your creditors. But what did Attlee do? Well, Attlee doubled down on public investment. He kept... Uh, wartime tax rates very high. He originated the national health system service. He built the British welfare state. And uh, lo and behold, Britain recovered from the war. Uh, Britain had full employment for two decades. How was he able to do that? And the answer is very simple. The rules of the system precluded speculators from betting against the pound. So there was political space for Britain, despite its great indebtedness, to pursue the policies that it wanted to pursue on behalf of economic recovery. Now, fast forward 35 years. It's 1981. Francois Mitterrand has been elected as the first socialist president of France. And uh, he also uh, wants to pursue a very far-reaching program of a lot of public investment. He's going to nationalize some of the banks. And what happens? Uh, speculators start betting against the franc, and they drive the franc into the ground. And the government resorts to controls. Uh, French citizens are prohibited from taking more than a few hundred francs out of the country, and the government becomes a laughingstock. And after about a year and a half, the French government is compelled to reverse course. What was the difference? The difference was that the ground rules of globalization had changed to let the speculators back in. 
And this was the beginning of the use by multinational corporations, by banks, by political right-wingers, the use of hyper-globalization to undermine the ability of democracies to have a managed form of capitalism. And so what happens is the living standards of ordinary people start deteriorating. Uh, there are no global labor standards. If, if workers in the United States or Germany or Britain have been fighting for a century to have minimum wages and strictures against child labor and safe workplaces, and suddenly uh, it's open season and countries that have no such standards can export products made by very cheap labor, by exploited labor at will, then all of those workers in the more advanced countries are at risk. And so for, for 20 or 30 years, the resentment, the anger, the sense of the good life being taken from ordinary people is at a kind of a slow simmer. And then 2008 comes, the financial collapse, the fruit of the deregulation of finance. We thought we learned the lesson in 1929 that if you let finance go crazy, it can take down the economy with it. But uh, in the 80s, in the 90s, in the zeros, um, in a capitalistic economy, the capitalists uh, recovered their normal political power to make the rules, which had been temporarily repressed. And so they finally turned the economy into such a casino that in 2008 it collapsed. Now, in Europe, the response to that was even more perverse than it was in the United States. It was, well, the economy collapsed, let's have austerity to reassure the creditors. That didn't work out so well. Ten years later, uh, there's still 10% unemployment. And what happens when you have chronic unemployment? Well, you, you get neo-fascist parties. And one of the other chapters in this book is titled The Disgrace of the Center-Left. Because in the 1990s, nominally left-of-center parties like the Democrats in the United States and the Labor Party in Britain and the Social Democrats in Germany basically joined the globalist consensus. So that when ordinary people who really didn't like the outcome looked for somebody offering something different, looked for an opposition party, the, the left of center party was, was very much a part of the globalist uh, regime. And so who fills the vacuum? Orban, Erdogan, Brexit, Trump. When Margaret Thatcher, the arch Tory prime minister of Britain, retired, uh, she was asked by a reporter, what do you think your greatest achievement was? And she thought for a minute, she said, my greatest achievement was Tony Blair. Now, Tony Blair was the Labor Prime Minister who succeeded her. And Blair decided that the, the way to beat Thatcher was to be very much like Thatcher. So the Labor Party did not really provide much of an alternative either. So what do you get? Well, you get Trump and you get neo-fascists in, uh, in much of the European continent. Um, I want to read you a couple of pages from the book, because I probably say it better than I can ad-lib it. Um, we have seen this movie before. During the period between the two world wars, 
free marketeers governing Britain, France, and the U.S. tried to restore the pre-World War I laissez-faire system. They put debt collection ahead of economic recovery. Right up until the German election of July 1932, in which the Nazis became the largest party, the pre-Hitler governing coalition was practicing the economic austerity commended by Germany's creditors and by orthodox financial opinion throughout the world. Now, Karl Marx was the great theorist of how capitalism was planting the seeds of its own destruction. But as I write, in the mid-20th century, history failed to follow Marx's script. At the apex of the post-war boom in the United States and Europe, Marx's bleak prediction of capitalist self-destruction seemed ludicrous. A contented bourgeoisie was huge and growing. The proletariat enjoyed steady income gains thanks to strong unions and public regulation. The political energy of aroused workers that Marx imagined as a revolutionary instead went to support social democratic and progressive parliamentary parties. These built a welfare state to temper but not supplant capitalism. Nations that celebrated Marx, meanwhile, were bleak economic failures that repressed their own working classes. Half a century later, working people are beleaguered and insecure. A global reserve army of the unemployed batters down wages. A lumpen proletariat of homeless vagrants and stateless migrants rends the social fabric. Even elite professions are becoming proletarianized. The global market weakens the reach of the democratic polity, undermining the protections of the mixed economy. And Marx got one other big thing wrong. He imagined that when capitalism hit a crisis, the workers of the world would unite. He left out nationalism. What happens is that that anger is more likely to go towards something like fascism than to go towards uh, anything like Marx's imagined communism. So to respond to my own question, can democracy survive global capitalism? Well, I think it can. Uh, you know, there's a there's a Italian radical named uh, long dead named Antonio Gramsci, who was put in jail by Mussolini in the 20s. And uh, Gramsci had a line that I like to quote and retranslate. He talked about a pessimism of the mind, optimism of the will. Now, the will has this kind of creepy 1930s sense. So I like to translate it, uh, pessimism of the mind, optimism of the heart. What does that mean? It means that based on what you know, you have to be something of a pessimist. But based on what you hope, you need to be an optimist because it's too depressing not to be an optimist. And if you compare the situation today with a situation, say, during World War II, um, after the war, we had a tailwind in favor of a socially just managed form of capitalism. The democracies had won the war. The democracies and their leaders had learned the lesson that uh, raw laissez-faire capitalism creates crises. They'd figured out a secret sauce to harness capitalism in the public interest by regulating it, by empowering trade unions. And today we have headwinds. We have a European Union that is fragmented, that uh, finds it difficult to reach any kind of a consensus. 
And to the extent that it does have a consensus, the consensus is austerity, which is completely perverse. And in the United States, we, we have Donald Trump. So why in the world would one find cause for optimism? Well, let me, let me try. Um, first of all, we can thank our lucky stars that Trump is an incompetent demagogue. If, if he were competent, we would be in much more trouble. But he is staggeringly incompetent, and he's in big trouble. And the New York Times this morning ran a kind of a scorecard of the six off-year special elections to the House, most recently in, uh, in Arizona. And the average swing from Republican to Democrat in those six elections was about 21 points. Now, that's not a blue wave. That's a blue tsunami. That's unheard of, that kind of a swing. And that suggests that um, Trump's unpopularity is rubbing off on the Republicans in the House and the Senate who uh, condone him, who defend him. It also suggests that um, even though there's a hard core of Trump voters who will always vote for Trump, there's a softer core of swing voters who uh, are inclined not just to vote against Trump, but to vote against Republicans who, who have kept on defending Trump. And uh, I think that we're going to see a massive shift in Congress. And once we do, I think impeachment is going to begin. And that will put the Republican Senate, if the Senate is still Republican or if it's not, it will put Republican senators in a very awkward position. Do you stand by your man? And then going into an election year, presidential election year, do you risk uh, reaping the wrath of the voters? Or do you, do you vote to, to convict? So this is not going to be a happy year for the defenders of, of Donald Trump. But that brings up the question, well, what in the world should Democrats do if they're fortunate enough to get elected? Because doesn't globalization destroy their ability to um, pursue the kind of social contract that we had after World War II? And I think while globalization has been used to undermine it, uh, nation states still have a certain amount of residual power uh, to pursue their own policies, especially the United States of America. And so what would you do? Well, again, let's, let's look back at World War II. I think what we need is World War II without the war. I think Make America Great Again is a terrific slogan. It's just that Donald Trump is going about it wrong. And how do you make America great again? Well, for starters, you could repeal the tax cut. That's about $2, billion, $2 trillion. And then you could add a couple of more trillion. I mean, the Fed, the Federal Reserve spent something like $4 trillion to bail out the banks. So how about, how about a $4 trillion infrastructure program? Uh, I mean, I was traveling home to Boston from Washington last week on Amtrak. And if you've ever taken that train ride, it's like you're going through an infrastructure museum. <laughs> it's infrastructure that's about 100 years old. And if you've been to Germany lately, it, it feels like they are living in a completely different century. I don't think that's because they're inherently better at this than we are. It's because they've chosen to invest some money in modernizing infrastructure. And I haven't even mentioned China yet. So what would an infrastructure program do? Well, you, you could rebuild all this decaying public uh, facility. 
you could have a green transition to uh, renewable energy. You could create a lot of terrific jobs. You could um, help American industry become globally competitive again. You know, the, the uh, largest export industry of the Netherlands is not cheese or tulips. It's expertise in management of water because the Dutch have had to learn how to do this. Well, we better learn how to do this soon. So we could be globally competitive in all these industries. World War II, we're still living off of the technological legacy of all of the investment that we made during World War II, even though half of it was made to be blown up. It still produced a lot of great technology, a lot of great companies along the way. So I think it's possible to have a more balanced economy. It's possible to have a managed form of capitalism. And what it takes is for the politics to be in alignment. And that requires a combination of great leadership and social movements, exactly what happened during that period. And it's not beyond the realm of possibility that it could happen again. But um, it's not guaranteed either. If you look at what happened last time, it took a combination of leadership and strong democracy and also an element of luck uh, and also an element of uh, volition. So this is one of those inflection points in history where, where things uh, could go either way. Uh, if this were a movie or a TV series, we would be sitting on the edge of our chairs and for better or for worse, it's our life, it's our future, it's our democracy, it's our country, it's our children. And, and speaking of our children, I think the other thing that really needs doing that could elect a president, imagine if a president, uh, a candidate for president, gave a speech and said, you know, the millennial generation is a stunted generation it's the most disadvantaged generation, maybe since the Great Depression, maybe ever. Look at, look at life from the point of view of a 25-year-old who's not fortunate enough to have an affluent parent and a family welfare state. Housing unaffordable, jobs unreliable, college debt, no pension plan. And there's a nice fable that some of the kids internalized and the fable goes something like this well I don't I don't need a big house because I spend most of my time at Starbucks with my laptop and uh, I have everything I need uh, I don't need a car a bicycle is cooler and uh, it's more uh, environmentally friendly and uh, it's probably not a good idea to buy a house because I'm gonna have to move ten times in the next ten years to find work um, there, <laughs> This is a con. This is a polite rationalization for a decline in living standards. And it seems to me that uh, a political leader who called for a new deal for the young or a movement of the young for generational justice would get a ton of political traction. So even though Donald Trump is in the White House and it's hard to look at the newspaper or read the internet without uh, coming up with a new calamity du jour that sort of debases our country to an even even lower level. Uh, it's also an opportunity. It's an opportunity to rebuild our democracy. It's an opportunity to rebuild uh, our infrastructure, our living standards. And so I want to leave you on a note 
of hope. Thank you for listening.